God begins with a word from God. This morning we'll be looking at Ezra chapter 5. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles there. You will be helped by following along in the text because what I have to say doesn't matter and and, um, doesn't ultimately carry any weight. What God has to say does carry weight. And so you need to see from the text where I'm getting what I'm saying and and then... um, you will be more faithful to obey uh, what the text has to say than what I simply have to say. Every work of God begins with a word from God. If God's people are going to do work for Him, then it begins with God speaking. It begins with God's Word. This is the way that God has always worked. From Moses to Abraham to David to the apostles to the leaders of this church in 1939 and even in our church today, if we're going to move in the direction that God wants us to go, we first have to hear from God. And that is why God's Word is so critical to our spiritual life. It is what brought us life in the first place. And it is what gets us up off our seat and moving toward God in obedience. We cannot live a meaningful life without God's Word. We can have everything else in life taken away from us, but still have God's Word and have great meaning in life. But if we are without God's Word, there is no purpose for life. And that's why God's Word must be at the very center of everything that we do in life, but also everything that we do in this church. In fact, it is how this church began. That it it was moved by what God's Word had to say about the importance of faithfulness in a culture which was opposed to Him. And that's how this church has remained faithful for 76 years is that people have been listening to God's Word. And it's the only way that this church will continue. Is if we hear God speak and respond to Him in faithful obedience. We were not made to live without food and water physically. And similarly, we are not made to live without God's Word spiritually. It is easy in the Christian life to take God's Word for granted, isn't it? And to think that you know, it's unnecessary or that, that we're getting too much of it. But when we start to think that way, we're walking dangerously close to turning away from God completely. The Jews recognized this in their history. The prophet Amos came by and said, listen, you don't care about what God has to say. And one day there's coming a famine in your land, but not a famine of food, but a famine of hearing God speak. There will be a time when you want God to speak and He won't. The point is that that God has spoken, that God is speaking to us through His Word, and we need to listen. Or else there may come a time when our hearts are so cold we don't want to hear God speak or that God will remove the significance of His Word from us. The Jews here in Ezra had some initial success. In chapters 1-3 through we saw that. They had made it back from Babylon to Jerusalem. Remember, they were in Babylon for 70 years in captivity. They made it back to Jerusalem. They began to settle in their homes and they started to restore worship. Remember, they set up, the very first thing they did was they set up the bronze altar there in chapter 3. 
They restored worship in the temple courtyard by bringing 218 sacrifices in, in the first two weeks of the year, celebrating Rosh Hashanah and then the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles. They also laid the foundation of the temple. But then, just like every step toward progress spiritually, there often comes opposition. That's what happened with the Jews. First, the opposition came covertly in chapter 4 with the enemies of God asking to help them. Hey, can we help you rebuild this temple? And then that way we can come and worship with you. And, And the Jews saw right through their covert opposition and they rejected their help because they knew they actually wanted to bring in false worship and potentially mix the worship of God, the true and living God, with the worship of false gods. And so they they overcame that covert attack. But then God rewarded them not with a life of ease, did He? Instead, it became more overt attack. Now it becomes more serious because now these people who wanted to come and help and and we want to to build this temple with you, now they are the ones who are going to be strongly opposed. And so they start to get the government involved and say, hey, do you realize what these people are doing? They're actually doing this against your will. And they're not going to pay taxes and all this. And the opposition becomes stronger and more overt in nature. And so what happens, we saw at the end of chapter 4, is that the work stopped. The work on the temple of God stopped. And it stopped for 16 years. During this time, King Cyrus was the one who sent them back, King Cyrus of Persia, and he died. And so did his son, Cambyses, as well as the next leader, Pseudo-Smyrtus. And so that led left the former general of the Persian army, the Persian empire, that is, to be the next king, the next empire, uh, the emperor of the Medo-Persian rule. And that was King Darius. And so this period of delay or of doing nothing lasted for 17 years. And that's where we pick up the story here in Ezra chapter 5. So let me read our text for us, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. When the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Jozadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At that time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bazanai and their colleagues came to them and spoke to them thus, Who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? And then we told them, Accordingly, what the names of the men who were reconstructing this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until a report could come to Darius, and then a written reply be returned concerning it. This is the copy of the letter which Tetanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bazanai and his colleagues, the officials who were beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent a report to him in which it was written thus, To Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we have gone to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, which is being built with huge stones and beams are being laid in the walls. 
And this work is going on with great care and is succeeding in their hands. Then we asked those elders and said to them thus, Who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names so as to inform you and that we might write down the names of the men who were at their head. Thus they answered us, saying, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth and are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, He gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. Also the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought them to the temple of Babylon, these King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon and they were given to one whose name was Shesbazar whom he had appointed governor. And he said to him, Take these utensils, go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt in its place. Then that Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God in Jerusalem. And from then until now, it has been under construction and it is not yet completed. Now if it pleases the king, let a search be conducted in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon. If it be that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to rebuild this house of God at Jerusalem and let the king send to us his decision concerning this matter. Here in chapter 5, we see that the work of God is is initiated and sustained by the hand of God. If there's going to be any positive Progress in the things of God it has to be started by God and continued by God, sustained by God. So first we see in verses 1 and 2 that the work of God is always initiated by the Word of God. The work of God is always initiated by the Word of God. Notice that the temple work continues in verse 2. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, arose and began to rebuild. So remember, before chapter 5, between the last verse of chapter 4 and the first verse in chapter 5, we have 16, 17 years of delay, of doing nothing. They had given up. The the opposition was too great. They couldn't do it anymore in their minds. And so in verse 2, it says that it began. They began to rebuild. But verse 1 tells us why the work resumed. And notice, it says, when the prophets, when the prophets who prophesied were in Judah... So, the, the reason that the work was started was because of the prophets. Now, before we look at the prophets here in just a second, let's turn back to chapter 4 and notice the reason for the 16-year delay. I had mentioned it earlier, but between 536 B.C. and 520 B.C., there is a, a delay. First, we see this uh, overt opposition. I mentioned there was a covert opposition in verses 1 to 3, but let's just look at the overt part in verse 4. Then the people of the land, that is, these people who had been living there before the Jews had come back, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So, they apparently bribe these officials and say, listen, can you make it more difficult for them to rebuild this temple? These Samaritans and other neighbors were 
afraid of the religious implications that having such a temple in this place would mean for them. And so they strongly opposed the people of Judah who had come back from captivity with the command from King Cyrus to rebuild your Jerusalem temple. The easiest thing for them to do for the Jews would have been to avoid confrontation, disobey God, and and um, and give up on the work of the temple. And that's exactly what the Jews are doing here in Jerusalem. They're taking the easy way out, not the right way. The opposition to rebuilding the temple turned into an excuse to stop rebuilding the temple. And instead, they would spend their energy on rebuilding their own houses. Remember, they, they haven't been, been here in 70 years. Some of them are coming for the first time back to Jerusalem. And so, they, as they start to get their property said, they say, you know, there's too much opposition over there at the church. Let's focus our attention on something that's not going to receive opposition, our own houses. Turn to Haggai chapter 1. It's towards the back of your New Testament, or your Old Testament, excuse me. It's the third to last book. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So the third to last book in the Old Testament. You see, these people had lost their vision of what God wanted. They had, been, they had become comfortable in disobeying God's Word. They had found another way to spend their energy, and that is on their houses instead of on the, church, the, uh, the temple of God. And so, it was the, only, the one reason for their delay, their, the 16-year stopping of rebuilding a temple, was because of the opposition. But the other reason is found here in Haggai, Chapter 1 and verses 2 and 4. Remember, here we're going to, when we get back to Ezra 5, we're going to see that Haggai was one of the guys that came and got them up off their seat and start working again. And here's what he tells them that that eventually gets them to start working. Look at verse 2. Haggai says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The people say, The time has not come even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. So think about this 16-year period of delay. Here's what you all are saying. It's not time to rebuild the house of the Lord. Look at verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? See, the other reason for them delaying or stopping the work on the temple in addition to the overt opposition that was coming from the people who had lived there, was their own laziness and their lack of prioritizing. That they had developed an apathetic attitude toward the people of, or, or towards the temple of God. Notice what they say in verse two: It's not yet time to rebuild the house of God. Yes, we know that God wants us to do that, but it's not time. We're going to hold off for a little bit longer until things fall into place. Where where things are more convenient, less opposition. Do you realize how much opposition we're getting from trying to rebuild the temple? And so Haggai comes along on behalf of God and he says, listen, God wants you to see the problem is not with your enemies. The problem is in your own heart. That you are unwilling to do the work of the Lord. They had plenty of time and energy, verses 3 and 4, of Haggai 1. They had plenty of time and energy to do what? What does it say there in verse 4? Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? So, this, these paneled houses were... In other words, 
overlaid with the cedar paneling to make it a lot nicer to live in, a much more pleasant living space. It was the cedar paneling that, that Haggai is talking about is something that was associated with the dwelling place of kings. And so they had focused their efforts on a comfortable dwelling place for their own families while the Lord was without a dwelling place in their midst. That's what they had come back to do. Even the pagan King Cyrus said, go back and, and rebuild your temple. They had seen God's hand in all of this. And yet because of laziness, because of inconvenience. I said, we can't do it right now. It's not yet time. We're going to wait a little bit longer. Turn back to Ezra chapter 5. The work of rebuilding the temple stopped because of the Jews because of the hearts of the Jews. And the only way that it was going to be resumed is if God would first speak to them. God's work is always initiated by God's Word. God has to speak. And so God does this. He sends Haggai, between chapters 4 and 5, He sends Haggai in 520 B.C. to speak to the people. And as we saw in Haggai's prophecy... He rebukes them for neglecting God's work. He goes on to warn them of God's discipline if they would continue to disobey Him. He even encourages them regarding God's presence. He promises future blessing to them. And He promises the future reign of the Messiah. And so God sends Haggai in August of 520 B.C. But two months later, He also sends Zechariah in October of 520 B.C. And Zechariah... His whole prophecy is directed at the, the people of Israel, the people that are back there in Jerusalem. And he does focus somewhat on the rebuilding of the temple, but his main focus on, is on restoring their hearts to God. But they need to restore and repent before God. You see, the only reason that verse 2 happens, that Jeshua and Zerubbabel lead the people to rebuild the temple is because verse 1 happened. And that is that Haggai and Zechariah were sent to speak God's Word to them. God's work is always initiated by God's Word. And we can, we can uh, praise God that the work did continue. 23 days after Haggai had prophesied on September 21st, 520 B.C., the work resumed on the temple. Despite the potential opposition, despite all the things that they were working on in their own homes, the work of God is initiated by God's Word. Second, second thing we see here in Ezra 5 is that the work of God is never without the presence of God. The work of God is never without the presence of God. Here in verses 3-5, through five, we have some mild opposition. Tatanai, uh, we're introduced to him in verse 3. Tatanai is the governor of this place that's called Beyond the River. It's another way of just saying the Trans-Euphrates region that's up to the north, uh, the north of Israel. This governor of that region starts to see what's going on, and he, he doesn't really intend to cause a lot of trouble necessarily. It seems like he's genuine in that he just wants to find out where did you get the permission, the approval, the authorization to be able to do these things. 
And so he asks the Jews for clarification in verse 3. He says, who told you you could do these things? And so they, they answer the question in verse 4. The Jews told them where they got the permission. And so Tetanai planned to contact the current emperor, King Darius, back in Persia and say, listen, is this legitimate? They said that they got approval from God Almighty and from King Cyrus. Is this true? But I want you to recognize here is that God's work is never without the presence of God. Look at verse 5. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them, that is, Tetanai and uh, Shethar Bazanai, they did not stop the Jews from continuing the work until a report could come. So, in other words, Tetanai and Shethar Bazanai gave the Jews the benefit of the doubt. Right? They said, well, we don't know if you really do have this authorization to continue the temple, but we're going to allow you to continue. And notice the reason, verse 5. But the eye of their God was on the elder of the Jews. God allowed them to continue. And so what we see here is that God's work is never without His presence. God somehow even works through a pagan official like Tatanai to be able to say, allow them to keep doing what I told them that they are supposed to be doing. The work of God is initiated by the Word of God. The work of God is never without the presence of God. And then thirdly, the work of God continues by means of the authorization of God. The work of God continues by means of the authorization of God. So in verses 6-17, through 17, we have a record of the letter that was sent from these trans-Euphrates governors, Tathani, Shethar, Bazani. They send a letter to King Darius, and it's very formal. They say, listen, we, we come in peace. Okay, we, we send this letter in peace. And we want to let you know, verse 8, what's going on here in Judah because we started to see this temple be, re, being rebuilt. And we want you to know about it and make sure that it's legal, that it is authorized. And so we ask these people who are rebuilding the temple why they're doing it. They're looking for authorization from Darius. And notice how the Jews responded in verse 11. Well, let's start with verse 10. We also asked them their names so as to inform you and that we might write down the names of the men who are at their head. And then verse 11, this is how they answered us. They said, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth and are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. Well, where are your names? We asked for your names, and instead you tell us that you're sent by God. So instead of giving their names, they responded by saying that the authorization that they had did not come from a local deity or a mortal king, but from the God who made the heaven and earth. You want to know where we get our authority to rebuild this temple? You don't need our names. You need to know that God sent us. Suppose I was given the job to paint the Mackinac Bridge maize and blue. And I begin the project and I have a huge crew of guys that are working with me. And some of the local authorities stop me and say, Hey, what's going on? I want to know all of your names so that I can turn you in. Where did you get authority to paint this bridge? And my response would be, you don't need to know my name. You need to know that President Obama 
authorized me to paint this bridge. And so if you have a question, you need to take it up with him. See, then they go to President Obama and he says, yes, I approve that. They, they don't need to know my name. This is what's happening here, I think. They ask the Jews, who are you people? What are your names? I'm going to report you to King Darius. And they say, you don't need to know our names. You need to know that the God of heaven gave us the authority to rebuild this temple. They also recognize the historical implications of what they're doing. At the end of verse 11, we're rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago. So this is not something small. A great king of Israel had done this. Speaking of Solomon. In addition, they recognize that their sin caused the destruction of the temple. That is the sin of their fathers. Verse 12. But because our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, He gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And then it finishes by saying, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. Notice they did not think that the temple was destroyed in the first place and that the Jews were exiled primarily because of the enemies. They didn't say, you know, we really had these bad enemies. that They were just such a thorn in our side. And if they wouldn't have done that, this temple would still be standing. Instead, they say, it was our sin. It was the sin of our people that caused this temple to fall. We defied God. And God rightly took it from us. Just as He had decreed. And it was because of our sin that this temple has been destroyed. They also recognized that not only did they have universal or authority from heaven itself, from God, they also recognized that they had regional authorization in verse 13. However, in the first year, Cyrus, king of Babylon, issued a decree. And so they're going to go on and say how that all happened. And so what you need to check, Darius, or you know, this is the Jews telling the, the trans-Euphrates officials, when you send the letter, tell Darius to check the records because King Cyrus wrote it down. He made a decree that we could rebuild the temple. We're not just doing this on a whim. We have authority from God in heaven, the God of heaven and earth, and we have authority from your Persian king that has now died some 16 years later. Well, in verses 16 and 17, we have a final summary and request that Sheshbazar uh, was the one who had laid the foundations. This is the officials that are sending the letter to Darius. They're just explaining more about how the temple has been rebuilt. And notice in verse 16, Then that Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. And from then until now, it has been under, under construction and it is not yet completed. And here's their request. This is the request from the, the officials of the trans-Euphrates region. Now, if it pleases the king, talking to King Darius, let a search be conducted in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, if it be that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to rebuild this house of God at Jerusalem, and let the king send to us his decision concerning the matter. So search the archives. Make sure that this is legitimate. They're saying that they're doing it on behalf of God and that King Cyrus has approved it or authorized it. And so we want to know for sure. Chapter 6 will show uh, the response to that. But for this morning, let me leave you with two principles and two points of application. Principle number one. God sovereignly controls us as we do the work He's called us to. God sovereignly controls us as we do the work He's He calls us to. 
it was not the Jews alone who were behind the rebuilding of the temple. It was not just their own personal desire and effort that caused the rebuilding of the temple to take place. It was God who was working behind the scenes. That's one of the great parts about Ezra. You don't see any miracles take place. You don't see any fire come down from heaven and destroy enemies. It just happens through the normal course of life. God's working behind the scenes. He's sending his, his, his uh, men, in this case Haggai and Zechariah, to get the people back in motion. And then God is not only initiating the work, but He's also, He has His eyes on what's going on. Remember verse 5? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. He did not leave them alone without His presence as they are being pushed or being initiated to do the work by God, God is also right there with them. He does not abandon His people in His work that He has called them to. God sovereignly controls us as we do His work. Number two, principle number two, at the same time, we are responsible. At the same time, we are responsible. Yes, God sovereignly initiates that His work be done and that God is there and He's sustaining us all the way. But we should never think that we we have no responsibility in the matter. The Jews recognize this, right? Verse 2, they resume the work. And they also recognize it in verse 12 by acknowledging their sin. God is sovereign over all things. He can do whatever He pleases, Psalm 115.3. Our job is not to force His will to happen, but to follow Him. It's to do what He desires. He does the leading. We do the following. Our job is to obey. That's why, again, God's Word is so critical to our lives spiritually. Do you remember at the Battle of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6? You know, the Jews might have thought at that point, even if they had the same goal as God, we want to defeat the city, that the best way to defeat Jericho would be to be trained in battle. How is it that we can get through this double wall barrier up into this hill fortress, effectively, and defeat these people? And how can we use our military skill? By the way, they didn't really have that much military skill. But that's not the method God used, was it? That's not the method that God used. And God often uses methods that to us don't make sense. Instead, He says, walk around the city. Do it every day. And on the last day, do it seven times. I can imagine the thoughts that must have been going through these people's heads. This is not going to work. Or probably, more likely, since they were people full of faith, this is going to work. We believe God. And that's why God was so adamant before the conquest before it even began, to get the people to understand that the most important part about accomplishing God's will was not military strategy. Or it was not about how to overthrow human governments. The most important part about learning to accomplish God's will is to obey God's command. Even when, and I should say especially when, those plans don't make to us. Remember what Joshua said to them at the beginning? Joshua 1.9 This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you will meditate on it day and night 
And so he could have spent all this time saying, all right, let's, let's be better militarily. Let's build up our defenses and our attack strategies. But instead he said, here's what you need to do. Learn how to obey God because God's going to have the victory even when it doesn't make sense. So I ask you, how do you respond when you know that God is speaking to you? What do you do when God commands you very clearly to do something? Do you obey right away or do you think it's not yet time to obey God? There's too much opposition. There's too, much, there's too many other things that I'm dealing with right now. I've got to get my own home in order. If you disregard God's Word, then watch out that it does not end up condemning you. But if you hear God's Word and you respond to it with repentance and belief and obedience, God's Word will be there supporting you all the way. And that's what the the prophets are doing, by the way. They're the ones who come with the Word of God and they say, let's get back to work. And 23 days later, they get back to work. And do you know who's right there supporting them? Look at verse 2 again. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house which is in Jerusalem. And look who's there. The prophets of God were with them, supporting them. We're on your side. You're doing God's will. So, principle number one, God is sovereignly in control over all things. He's the one who initiates His work with His Word. And he sustains it. He, he maintains his presence throughout. And then secondly, we are responsible. We need to actually follow him. Don't expect God to just force us or zap us into conformity to his will. Instead, we need to be responsible and obey. So, two applications. Application number one, put God's work first in your life. Put God's work first in your life. For Haggai... The people of Jerusalem, if they would put God's work first, it would be a visible sign to the people around them and to God that that God was most important to them. And so I say to you, don't delay in doing what is most important. Make it a priority to obey God. Maybe there is opposition that you're facing. Significant opposition. I don't want to minimize that. But there's no opposition that is too great for our God. God has made you an overcomer, and the way that you do that is by looking at His Word and obeying it. Has it been too difficult, though? Have you said, like the people of Judah, it's not yet time to obey the Word, to obey the word of the Lord. I'll wait until it's easier. And what we mean by that is, I'll do it when it's more convenient. Let me show you a little secret with you. It will never, it will never be easy to do what God wants you to do. It is with much opposition that we fight this battle of the Christian life. The powers of hell and Satan are opposed to you. And even this whole world's evil system is opposed to our God. And so why do you think it's going to be easy? And even your own flesh opposes you at times. And so don't let the guaranteed opposition stop you from doing God's desires. We often are like the soldier 
in battle who is back in the bunker and saying, you know, they got guns out there. We should probably hang back here. Maybe we should head back to to the to the place where we stay. Otherwise, we might be taken hostage or we might be wounded. We'll just stay back here until things get a little bit easier. Your neighbor is never going to come to you and say, you know, I noticed that God is very important to you, so I'm going to take care of all of your your outside responsibilities. I'm going to mow your lawn. I'm going to clean your windows. I'm going to shovel your snow. That way you can focus all of your attention on serving God, going to church, reading your Bible. It's not going to happen. No one's going to pay you to read your Bible. No one's going to give you an award or write a book about how faithful you are to God. It's all too easy for us to push God and His work off to a lower priority. But God says... How can you give so much attention to polishing up all the things that are important to you in your life and yet you neglect what is most important to me? You don't have time for me. And what that tells me is that you've prioritized in the wrong way. You've made something else your God. So we need to put God's work first in our life. We need to prioritize when we pursue our own pleasures over God's, what happens is our best energy is given to something that is of little value, something that's passing away. So that when it's time to give to God's work, our bank accounts are drained because we've already used it on things that are most important to us. Or when it's time to participate in advancing God's work in the church by sending a thank you note or or an email to someone to let them know that you're praying for them or visiting a person who's hurting or participating in outreach or spending time in meaningful prayer, we can't do it because we've already spent all of our energy on the things that we wanted to do. And God's saying, you've spent all of your energy and time and money on the things that you want while the progress of my work through the church is left with nothing. My house is in ruins while you're living in your paneled houses. So we need to consider our ways. We need to put God's work first despite the opposition that will come. Application number two. Make the connection between your service and God's future kingdom. You want some motivation to serve? Then, then make the connection between what you're doing and God's future kingdom. The Jews recognized that through the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah that their work was not just about them. It wasn't just affecting their responsibilities or, or their families and their people. It was ref- affecting the future. It was connected to what God was doing in a bigger way. He was building a dwelling place for, his, for Himself among His people so that He could come and dwell among them in the temple that He could be their God and they could be His people. And that their work would actually bring about an effect that would bring about change for believers that, that came along far after they were dead. Have you ever thought about your life in those terms? That the work that you're doing for the sake of God is not just for you, it's not just for your family, it's not just for this church. We should recognize that of all people. The church that's been here for 76 years, we stand on the shoulders of people who are faithful to God for years. People who are now long dead 
And we now are enjoying the, the benefits of the spiritual work that they did in this body. And you have the same you have the same possibility that when you do this work for God, you are not just serving believers here and now. You are doing that, and that's a great thing. But, in, but you are connecting. You, you need to connect your work to what's happening in the future, what Christ will do for His kingdom. I, I'm, I'm bringing more people into the kingdom. In many ways, we are like the Jews in a spiritual way. That that the apostles for us have laid a foundation. And as Christ's church, we are supposed to build on that foundation through the power of the Spirit as God making his, is making His church a, a dwelling place, a place where He can come and feel comfortable at home. That's why He calls us the temple of His. We are the temple of God. And so when we see the connection between our current service, our progress toward holiness, and what that means for our present and our future and Christ's future reigns, it will motivate us to serve God wholeheartedly. And so we will not say with the Jews, it's not yet time to serve God. It's not yet time to do what He's asked us to do. Instead, we will say, yes, Lord. We seek Your face and we obey You fully because we recognize that You are most important. You are worthy of our service. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for the foundation that You have laid in our lives, in this church. Through the apostles, through the faithful believers throughout the centuries, and through uh, the faithful founders of this church back in 1939 and certainly many others who have come along after them, faithful members who committed themselves to the work of uh, your service, to the spread of the gospel, to the growth of, of souls. And some here are even, uh, were even saved as a result of some of those people. The ministry of this church. And we want to see more people be added to Christ's kingdom because we are unwilling to say that we don't have time or it's not yet convenient to serve you. Instead, we're, we gladly will get up and stand up for the sake of Christ and suffer reproach with Him outside the camp because we know that we have a lasting city that we're working for. Not one that's going to be destroyed by human hands, but one that will last forever. A dwelling place where You will come and You will live among us. And that's the real building that we're building. Not this physical building in which we meet, but the spiritual building that You are making as we are becoming more holy, more uh, in subjection to our Savior and to His desires for us. Lord, help us to prioritize in life. There are so many things that are going on that can distract us from what is most important. Lord, there's so much opposition that we face physically, spiritually, relationally, financially, politically. So we need Your help. Lord, we cannot do this without You. And so we pray for Your help as we seek to put You first in our individual lives and in our church. 
Lord, you are worthy of our worship. Make us worthy of the calling that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.